0: change. is the only constant in every aspect of our lives, be it how we work, how we live, how we learn. It forces us to make the right decisions without the choice of looking back at history and conventions to know what's right. I am Vikram Baskaran and this is Chargebee's Champions of Change podcast, where we talk to changemakers who walked before us, build businesses on first principles, and unearth their tips and tricks to identify change and turn that into opportunity. Remember, you're just one decision away from being a change maker. Hello, everybody. Today we have with us Scott Lee's mentor, coach, and one of the top leaders in startup sales. Oh, and he's also the author of at least two Amazon category bestsellers to date. And from battling a life-threatening illness to becoming an established sales leader, Scott has turned his over two years of experience driving negotiations, tactics, and closures into a consulting org, Scott Lee's Consulting. He works with startups across the globe, helping them define sales strategy, processes, people, pitch narratives, and more. But wait, Scott is also the founder of Surf and Sales, an alternative to sales conferences that I'm sure we're going to be uh, diving deep into in a bit. Okay, get that? That was the joke. Surf, dive, that part. Got it. Got it. Sometimes I'm pretty funny. And... uh, Scott also started uh, Thursday Night Sales, which is a weekly virtual sales happy hour. But uh, since this is Monday when we're recording this, we're going to do this sober. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. And uh, let's start unpacking all that wisdom. Yeah, thanks for having me. I also like that you are, are assuming that I'm sober. Monday. <laughs> Thank you for that. So to, uh, to start off, Scott, you are a fast-paced man doing a lot of things at once. That's, that's kind of been your USP. But if we went back to the beginning for a minute, and if this isn't too personal, you had a life-threatening illness, and that kind of changed you, and kind of led you into sales. So, can you can you talk to us a little bit about that story?
1: Yeah, I was not a, a business person when I was young. I was not one of these kids who, you know, had a lemonade stand on their street or anything like that. I studied psychology and religion in college, and uh, I was primarily an athlete. If you asked me who I was, what I did, that would be my answer. I'm, I'm an athlete. I I played. Couple sports in high school, and I played both college soccer and college tennis. And uh, division two school, and we were you know top twenty, top twenty five in the nation. Pretty good teams. And I went to grad school after uh, university, get a, a master's degree, and started playing some soccer down there as well. And was teaching. I came home right before my twenty third birthday from from finishing grad school, and uh, I got super sick. It took me four years to get better. I had a bunch of different autoimmune disease challenges, including ulcerative colitis, and colon cancer scare. I've had nine major uh, surgeries, four major abdominal surgeries, two life-saving emergency abdominal surgeries. And throughout that four-year period, I also got addicted to opioids and pain medicine, morphine, Oxycontin, Dilaudid. Like it and you name it, any any kind of pain medicine. So not only did I have to go through the illness and the surgeries and the physical recovery of everything, but when all that was done, I had to get off I never really had a career until after I was 27 years old. And that was in a roundabout way how I got into sales because I couldn't think of anything else that would kind of scratch my competitive itch and also gave me a chance to Make up for lost time and kind of make as much money as as possible. And a friend of mine suggested I I give it a try. And so I did. I I looked for an early stage startup company in San Francisco Bay Area where I was living at the time. And the rest is, uh, is history, as they say. So super non traditional route into sales and business. And, uh, you know, not a path I'd
0: ever recommend for anybody, but it's the one that I took. It's interesting that, uh, you know, you started late, but. As someone that was completely new to sales, you kind of grew up the ladder extremely quickly. You went on to lead the sales function for sub- many subsequent companies in extremely short periods of time. And I know you've written a book on it, but what's your steroid? What like how did you end up being able to grow your career so quickly and so successfully in helping transform so many different organizations in, in such an incredibly short period of time? Well, I think number one I got. You know, very lucky. You know, somebody gave me a chance initially,
1: you know. I, I remember being in an interview and somebody saying, I don't know what you wanna know who this guy is. He's never done anything before, like, why are we gonna give this guy a shot? And so somebody gave me a chance to prove myself. So, you know, I, I wanna I wanna start there. But you don't go through an illness like I went through where you're literally, you know, not breathing fresh air for four years and emerge out the other side of that with a a different perspective. And that perspective for me was an extreme sense of urgency and a a reverence for every single opportunity that we have in this life. And I just wasn't going to squander them. So that manifests itself in terms of how much I cared, how hard I worked, how many hours I put in, the things I was trying to get done. I optimized for risk. Rather than comfort and security. So if you look at my career, every job that I took was with a super early stage company. Often they had no paying customers at all. And I was sort of saying, you know, give me all the pressure, put it all on my back and let me let me kind of prove myself. So I did these very risky things in order to, in my mind, advance faster. You know, I didn't want to sit around and wait for somebody to say, Well, you haven't been here for three years, Scott. So you're not gonna be a a sales manager. And things like that. So every time I felt like I kind of sealing out, it was time for me to move on and, and kind of bet on myself once again. So I think a little bit of luck just happened to be pretty good at, at sales. Never knew that I was, you know, hard work, of course, but just this like extreme sense of urgency and commitment and determination to get things done.
0: And then taking risks and betting on myself and not, you know, not playing it safe. Brilliant. You've had this whole multiple experiences, but. There's also this trend that's, that's pretty obvious in that you seem to start off with a fresh canvas every time. You are part of organizations through the zero to 20, 25 million uh, revenue range. And then just as that rocket is starting to hit the stratosphere, you seem to like to jump off and then hit reset again. And now that's what you do full-time in terms of consulting, where you mostly focus on uh, companies scaling through that zero to 25 journey. So what is it about this niche particularly that excites you? What's there in this 0 to 25 journey?
1: Well, I, th- I think it takes a special kind of crazy person to sign themselves up for this uh, this part of the business journey all the time. And and I, I like that. As I said before, the, the thrill of it and the pressure of it all, feeling like everything that you do matters and makes a massive impact was really appealing to me. I think early on in my career, I started to realize that I was fairly entrepreneurial, even though I, you know, I've never been a, a SaaS business founder. I was trying to kind of replicate being a founder in a lot of ways, and staying close to the beginning, I felt like was a good way to do that. I never really fancied myself somebody who needed to learn everything. I just thought, well, if I get really good at this one piece, this one niche, then maybe I can be kind of be that guy, right? Like I'm the guy that you call when you're trying to go zero to twenty-five. There's not that many VPs of sales and CROs who continuously sign themselves up for that. It's really hard. It's really stressful. You know, you have to get into the mud and dig ditches yourself, and pick up the phone and make calls, and be the first one to figure out how to sell this, and and not be just a VP of spreadsheets, as I like to call it, sitting behind their desk and looking at numbers. So it's that race and that competitiveness, and a little bit of you know trying to prove prove people wrong all the times people say, "Oh, that's not going to work," or you don't want to leave. Why would you leave? This thing's going really well. You know how are you can replicate that over there. You can't do this. I bet you can't do it again. You know, there's a part of me that's just like, oh, really? I'm going to show you. And a little bit of the chip on my shoulder, you know, with that. All of those kind of reasons. And then, really, practically speaking, the job totally changes when you get to three, four, five hundred people in the organization, and you're the head of a department. I don't enjoy spending my time in meetings all day long. I don't enjoy the slowness with which certain decisions get made. I want to move fast. I want to get shit done. Um, And that becomes really hard to do. And I like to feel like I'm making an impact on the organization and on the people who are working for me. It's very easy for me to train and coach and develop people when there's 10, 20, 30, even 50 sales reps. When there's 250, I barely know everybody's name. And that's just not as appealing for me. You know, For me... This became my niche on the starter. I'll get you from zero to twenty, twenty-five million or so, and it'll take me two and a half to three years, and then I'm out of there. I'll go do it again. I just kept doing that until uh, you know I finally cut the cord and and just decided to do this on my own and and be an advisor to a half dozen to a dozen companies at a time instead of just working full time for one.
0: I want to kind of unpack on that. You know, within that whole zero to twenty-five, particularly that zero, right? Because at least from my experiences as well. And I've thoroughly enjoyed the early stage growth of startups as well for a good part of my career. And yes, it's definitely exciting, but there's this exponential kind of benefit that you start seeing for the work put in. So the first dollar gives you two, and then the second dollar gives you four, and then it kind of starts uh, getting into a point of explosiveness. But when you put an exponent of zero, it's still zero. So getting from zero to one, and I'm not talking about zero to one, a million dollars. I'm talking about getting that first dollar into the bank. That's insanely hard. Can you talk about some of these experiences, like specific experiences that you have seen of that first sale and what were the difficulties and how were you able to navigate around them? You know, there's just something to
1: be said for those early milestones like that and the excitement and the joy and the enthusiasm it feels. You know, you close the first deal for a business ever, regardless of the size. And that can feel more powerful than closing a million dollar deal for Apple or Microsoft, right? Like you and I go close a million dollar deal for Microsoft today. Who fucking cares? It's an extra zero on somebody's spreadsheet. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But we close a million dollar deal for early stage startup. We're a legend. I will turn the logo and the mascot of the business into a toy with your face on it. I'll paint a mural of you on the wall because you're a legend. There's, there's something really appealing about that to the ego. I can remember almost 20 years ago when I was first getting started. This is probably 15 years ago, probably my first head of sales job, VP of sales job. We actually were selling deals before the website was mine. You can believe that. We just had a landing page that didn't show the product whatsoever. And trying to sell people on an idea and being unable to show them like, how this product was going to work that was really, really tough and challenging, but we were so excited about it that we didn't want to wait. And I remember when we first closed the deal, we were all just like, did that just happen? How did that just happen? You know, can we, Does that mean all of us can do that? Does that mean we can do more of that? And the last company that I was an operator at you know, is this property tech company called Qualia, who's multi-times over a uh, unicorn at this point in time. I started there in early November of 2016, I think it was. They've been building the product for a couple of years, but they would unable to sell it, unable to get any traction. And I showed up, you know, spent the last few weeks of November just like trying to learn the industry, learn the product, and it's title insurance software for the real estate industry. This is a super complicated industry in America. All sorts of rules and regulations, and just like a nightmare to, to try to learn. Complex product, a million different feature sets, and I'm like guys, we got to distill this down to like the three or four things that matter the most. And I can remember sitting in a room with the founders, kind of forcing them to like scratch off things that weren't as interesting or or weren't as cool or weren't as powerful. And that first month, we had three salespeople that that I inherited who had never closed a deal on that first month in December, which is not necessarily the best month, most people would say. We closed 18 deals. Went from no customers ever to 18 deals after I put together a revamped kind of sales pitch and process and approach, and I can remember all of us just sitting there going, "Holy smokes! Like we're on to something here!" And the enthusiasm and the and the fun in that to me, it's just unmatched,
0: and that's why I've always kind of. Graduated to those types of opportunities. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, and that's exactly the essence or the emotion of that zero dollar sale that I wanted to uh, talk about. That that zero point zero 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 one, but it's still you know that first invoice that you that you bring in. It just means something. So before we move on to your entrepreneurial journey, right now, this transition from the if we were to break down that zero to twenty five. Into the say the zero to one and the one to ten and then the ten to twenty or the ten to twenty five, and each of those there's still fundamental differences in that. All right, so you're just figuring it out. All right, so now we have product market fit. Now we can start scaling, and now we we need to hire more AEs and like set up some early rudimentary processes. And you've cracked the playbooks for each of these spaces. Can you explain? a little bit more about how each of these phases kind of impacts your approach to sales and how your playbook should probably adapt at each of these
1: well first of all i think one of the mistakes that early startups and sales leaders make is that they don't build a playbook whatsoever and they just kind of get in there and try to make things happen on their own and they don't track or document you know what's working or not working for them so that zero to one million kind of phase that's where you're supposed to build all this playbook. And it doesn't mean it's final, right? It's not like the 10 commandments and it's set in stone for eternity. This thing is a living, breathing document. So we're going to change and, and evolve it and improve upon it. But when I when I go in, right at the be- beginning, it's a lot of me doing some of these things myself and trying to prove it out. I'm trying to prove I can open opportunities. I'm trying to prove I can set demos, close deals. And once I do that, I need to Have it on paper and be able to hand it off to a couple reps. And if those reps can do, you know, even half as good as I would be able to do, now we're on to something. Now we got to go from a couple reps to about 10. That requires a lot more investment in revenue operations, sales operations, right? Make sure we're tracking the right systems, using the right tools, managing our pipeline appropriately, you know, routing leads the right way, all this kind of stuff. So you got to get a little bit more organized there. And that's the next milestone for me is you know, I'm in a VP of sales role, but I'm now I'm kind of acting as a sales manager as well. And can I get you know 10 people or so to be productive and to hit numbers and build pipeline? If that works, then you kind of expand to potentially in the 20s, depending on your market size. And at that level, you start to need sales managers and you know more like sophisticated sales training and onboarding kind of, you know, regimen and process and stuff like that. So You go through these different gates. You're doing it yourself. Can you replicate it with a few? Can you replicate it with half dozen or a dozen? Can you replicate it with two dozen? And those gates just keep on expanding depending on your total addressable market and and how many prospects are out there and how many people you're contacting as a salesperson each day. And, And you find the sweet spot and forecast all that out. And that's the simplistic explanation of how I I look at things and these different kind of phases. And that moves you along from,
0: you know, your first million to your first 10 and towards your first 20 and things like that. Now, because you've you've kind of, you join in with an expiry date technically. And if you did a really good job, your expiry date comes in earlier. I know you have your playbooks for the play. Do you also have playbooks for your exit strategy in that, you know, how does the organization continue to scale and grow and take on the best learnings from you without Scott? In the ship.
1: One of the many mistakes I made in my career was not having a good exit strategy for a really long time. Your ego gets in the way a little bit. You think, oh, whoever comes in should just be able to take over what I'm doing. You know, it'll be fine. I laid it out perfectly for them. Or you get a little bitter and, you know, they start to not do as good. And you're like, see, should have treated me better. I'd still be there, right? And unfortunately, it took me a long time to realize that that was costing me a lot of money. I left one organization and we were worth about $350 million. Five years later, we sold for less than $200 million. That's a massive failure on my part to not set things up the right way. So what I eventually figured out was, I need to bring in people who are as good, if not better than me, and turn it over to them. So I hired my replacement. He didn't know at the time that he was going to be my replacement. And my boss didn't know at the time he was going to be my replacement, but that was what I was thinking. was like, OK, I'm getting towards the end of my tenure here. like, if I leave, who's going to be able to keep this going and continue to grow it? And so I about six, seven months before I was planning to leave, I worked really hard to bring this, this person in. and we were just way more organized, had things kind of buttoned up, and the process was really set up well, but I, I really had the right people in place, you know, really senior people leading. RevOps and taking over as VP of sales and experienced people in sales management roles and, and things like that. I've never written about that before. I'm, I've done some fun trainings on when and how to walk away and things like that. That's, I think, it's different depending on your, on your role. But I think the real lesson here, is, you know, if you're an executive, is you've done a good job if that organization continues to thrive once you leave, not goes in the tank. And you kind of smile from afar and say, "See, should have, should have kept me around, or should have treated me better. That, that that was dumb on my part, and it, and it cost me. I'm glad I eventually,
0: you know, grew out of that, matured out of that, a benefit from that now." Yeah, but that's, I think, amazing uh, learning for everybody else who's looking at that zone right now. But speaking about playbooks, in one of your books, Addicted to Process, you talk about the addiction model in terms of closing deals. And from what you said earlier, I think you might have taken a lesson or two from your experience with uh, pain meds and opioids and uh, all of that. Could you talk a little bit more about this? How do you instill the same values in your team and drive that down to creating a repeatable model for the next generation?
1: It's pretty simple, actually. When I was first selling, nobody taught me how to sell. Nobody taught me any kind of sales framework or anything like that. I just got turned loose on the phones and somebody said, figure it out. And what I realized pretty quickly was that what worked for me to sell was the same thing that worked for addicts to get clean and to go through recovery. And that is, they have to understand and believe that they have a problem, first of all, or the conversation never gets started. Once they believe they have a problem, they have to understand why it's important to fix this particular problem. So that's the value part to me. Why is this important? Why should I care? We all know functioning addicts and alcoholics who know they have a problem, but they don't really care enough to do anything about it. Well, then you get to the third phase and it's like, okay, I know I have a problem and I understand it'd be important to fix it, but I've got all these other things going on, so I'm not going to, it's not a priority right now. That's the urgency piece. And as sellers, we need to create some urgency in the people that we're talking to. This has to become a, the house is on fire, not like a couple sparks or two, you know, in the corner, right? It's not a paper cut, it's like a severed limb that needs attention straight away. So I realized that only if those three boxes had been checked was somebody interested in my solution or my product. And it's the same thing with recovery. Unless you've, you understand you have a problem, understand why you should get better and have urgency behind it, like you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your house, you're going to lose your marriage, you're going to lose your kids. If there's no urgency there, nobody makes a change. That's what they call rock bottom in recovery, right? So then and only then is somebody interested in recovery and getting clean. And I just modeled my sales process after that. So I got somebody to uh, admit they had a problem right? So I found some pain. I got them to understand the value in solving this particular problem. Why is it important? I got them to agree that it was you know, urgent, and that it was something that they should fix right away before things got worse and before they lost things that were important to them. And then they would come to me and say, "Hey, so this is what you do? Like, Tell me how you solve this problem. So they're asking for my help now. And that's the best case solution. And so I put that in my book, Addicts to the Process, and I call it the addiction model, which is find pain, Build value, create urgency,
0: discuss solution. Four simple steps. I love it. I love it. I think um, that is just as applicable in marketing as in sales. In that, all right. So this is this is what you need to do. You need to you need to get your customers to understand the problem, get them to voice out why they want to get better, define the urgency, and then bam, solution. I think that's a beautiful model. Now you work with a huge bunch of these early stage uh, startups and. I know we've kind of touched upon this a little bit in the past but I specifically want to get deeper into this. What have you noticed that most of these companies get wrong when it comes to setting up their sales and scaling up their sales? Oh man, so many different things. They don't put any kind of
1: playbook together, so they're just winging it. They've got three or four different people selling and all three or four of them sell completely different. They over optimize for people with industry experience rather than sales acumen that's a big one i see them going after the top of the market like the biggest enterprise customer way too soon before they've figured some things out they hire only one person at the beginning instead of a couple that one person's on an island and doesn't have anybody to bounce ideas off or learn from or compete with i see people founders in particular i see you know not invest in in sales and revenue operations at all, and they kind of expect the VP of sales to do everything, which is too much and, and too hard. Sales VPs don't put enough time and energy into coaching and developing their, their reps, they just kind of leave people on their own. I have to go on and on and on. I think what happens most common is companies seem to be able to get to about a million dollars, maybe two million dollars through like founder led sales and like a couple reps just winging it. But the problem is it breaks down after that. Because you don't have the right data, you don't have the right process, and you can't replicate when you try to hire 10, 20 people to do the same thing that these two or three of you at the beginning were able to do. So it's just not investing enough in building the foundation early on and just being too fixated on like early
0: results. That's like solid content for a book. I think that that definitely is a book material right there. I, to be honest with you, I think I'm done writing books. I've written three,
1: I wrote one about being a rep. That's addicted to the process. I wrote another one called From Rep to Manager about making the change from being an individual contributor to being a a sales leader. And then the last one, More Than a Number, is all about the life and times of the VP of sales. So I feel like I've written a little bit about the trilogy. And I need a break because writing books is like an exhausting process. (laughs) I think I've done
0: enough for now. But in case that ever comes out, guys, you heard it here first. <laughs> uh, just putting it out there. We, we heard him basically saying, "No, nah, I don't believe you, Scott. You're going to write another one. <laughs> so my final question before we uh, close our session for tonight, you've built a hugely supportive community with uh, Surf and Sales and with uh, Thursday Night Sales. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? And what was the purpose? Why did you, why did you start these very offbeat communities around sales? Well, I mean, number one, I'm pretty offbeat. I just shaved recently, but
1: right before I shaved, you know, I look like Forrest Gump. I look like a homeless person. I dress like I did in high school. I don't look like a normal VP of Sales guy with like a Patagonia sweater and you know gel in my hair. I don't fit in. I don't. I didn't go to Stanford or you know Harvard or get some fancy MBA. So those kind of scenes, like that's not my thing at all. I'm very direct i'm very open, honest. people have told me i'm you know allow myself to be vulnerable a lot, and so I wanted to create these like safe places where sellers and sales leaders who maybe don't fit the normal mold could be themselves and could could learn and listen from somebody who's been there and done that a few times and, and tell it like it is and you know way before the pandemic back in two thousand and seventeen, I had this inclination that you know we had gone too big with things with macro had kind of played itself out like. I don't want to go to a conference with 250,000 people there. That's not my thing. I don't want to make all these superficial relationships where I say hi, introduce myself, give you my business card, and then off I go. I'd much rather go spend a week in a tropical location like Costa Rica... And get to know people and have deep like, experiential conversations and, and relationship building. And then when the pandemic started, I started Thursday Night Sales. So salespeople had a place to hang out. There's a lot of sellers who suddenly were working remotely for the first time and felt disconnected from their teams and, and coaching, had no sense of community whatsoever. So it was just a way for me to try to work on something that I've, I've been terming you know, mentorship at scale. You know, I can't work with everybody one on one, but I can do these things. I can host these events and these trainings where you know twenty, fifty, two hundred, we have four hundred people come one time to a Thursday night sales event, and people are just asking questions and you know giving my best answer. My partner Amy Bolas, is giving answers. So this you know shift away from macro and big and superficial towards more intimate and experiential in terms of events and conferences and, and micro community, you know, I think we really saw those blossom in, during the pandemic. And, you know, I was a little bit ahead of the curve. And I kind
0: of leaned into it a little bit harder over the last couple of years. Excellent. And if anybody wants to join these communities, is there a place that uh, we could join uh, the Thursday night sales conversations with you? I mean,
1: Thursday Night Sales is totally free. They just go to ThursdayNightSales.com and register and you get added to the the invite list and get the Zoom info every week. We've got a Slack community that has a couple thousand people in there. Surf and Sales is an event. So every time we have an event, we're adding about 20 people into the alumni. We've been doing this for about four or five years now, do a couple of years. So that that community grows a little slower. But we have the Surf and Sales podcast. You can listen to my partner, Richard Harris, and I interview all sorts of smart people about sales and, and leadership and get involved that way. And I'm super active on LinkedIn. So if anybody you know ever wanted to reach out and had questions
0: for me, I'm, I'm happy to get engaged and, and respond and try to be helpful. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Scott. And uh, I should say this has been one of the most high energy uh, podcast sessions that we've had. I absolutely enjoyed this. So thank you so much for the time today. Oh, you're welcome, Vic. Thank you very much. And thank you guys for listening in.